Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. This episode is the second in a three-part podcast miniseries on expanding options for HIV care, current and future innovations in antiretroviral therapy. In the miniseries, we are talking with global HIV experts as well as patient advocates to hear their insights on different aspects of the evolving field of HIV care. In the first episode, we followed a conceptual roadmap of HIV treatment that began with where we are with HIV service delivery. In this second episode, we'll go to the second stop along that roadmap, where we're going, the next wave of antiretroviral innovations, focusing on how HIV care can better meet the diverse needs of people living with HIV as new treatment strategies emerge and continue to evolve. To begin, I spoke with Chloe Orkin, Professor of HIV Medicine at Queen Mary University of London and Consultant Physician at Barts Health NHS Trust, and I asked her why it's important to have options other than the highly effective single-tablet daily oral regimens that we've now had for quite a number of years for the treatment of HIV. If we look at the treatment cascade, what we see is that not everybody is undetectable on treatment and not everyone is engaging with their care, and that is because there are a multiplicity of reasons that people find it difficult uh, to take oral therapy. Some of these are related to being a fear of disclosure, being discovered. Some of them are around daily reminder. Um, Some of them are around the sense that HIV feels somehow different to other illnesses. And and stigma is, is an important consideration. So what we're finding is even people who are on several other medications are still wishing to take injectable treatment because it's something that's not about the tablet itself, it's about the meaning of of taking treatment for HIV. Dr. Orkin mentioned the injectable treatment, which is the newest way that some people are now able to receive HIV therapy. Thus far, there are two such options available, cabotegravir plus rilpivirine administered every one to two months as intramuscular injections, and lenacapavir administered every six months as a subcutaneous injection. Cabotegravir plus rilpivirine is approved as a complete switch regimen for people with viral suppression on their current oral therapy, whereas lenacapavir is approved for use in conjunction with other antiretrovirals for the treatment of multidrug-resistant HIV infection in people with limited treatment options. These may be the leading edge of many future long-acting treatments for HIV. Let's first consider the impact of cabotegravir plus rilpivirine for people living with HIV. Here's Dr. Orkin. Long-acting uh, HIV treatment uh, with cabotegravir and rupivirine has changed the face of HIV treatment and it's released them from the burden of daily oral therapy and the need to make daily oral good decisions about taking treatment. And it allows six treatments a year. I think it's very clear from what people living with HIV are saying about long-acting treatment how much they want it and how, how happy they are when they're on it, um, that this is very much wanted and is helping people in terms of quality of life, particularly those with psychological challenges. Indeed, long-acting treatment options are something that people living with HIV have expressed interest in for many years. Here's Angelina Namiba, founding member and co-director of the 4M Network, a peer support program led by Black migrant women who are training women living with HIV across the United Kingdom to provide psychosocial support to peers during and beyond their pregnancy journey as mentor mothers. 
I remember years ago when I was diagnosed and I started taking medication, just I went to do a talk somewhere. And um, after my talk, one of the questions I was asked is, you know, what, what would you like to see for the future of treatment? And I jokingly said, I would love it if we could reach a point where I could take a pill once a month. It was, I was, because that time, obviously there was absolutely, but I just, that was my wish. And I just said, I wish that could happen. And look, now we've got injectables, you know, so it's, there's so much potential in terms of even just looking at long acting injectable. You, there would will be for certain groups of people who are maybe perhaps not able to take tablets, who are not very adherent to their medication for all sorts of reasons, because people do not adhere to their medication, not just because they don't want to. There's always circumstances around them, you know. Maybe, you know, someone maybe who's young, who's been taking medication since they were born, they've got treatment fatigue, you know. Or for, it would be nice to have a change, but a good change. Or for some, you know, it's perhaps the only thing that they have control over in the rest of their lives, depending on what's going on around it. In addition to fulfilling a long-standing treatment preference for many people living with HIV who have already experienced viral suppression with daily oral therapy, long-acting injectable treatment is also demonstrating that it can address unmet needs for people who have not been able to meet treatment goals with currently available oral regimens. Here's Monica Gandhi, Medical Director of the HIV Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, known as Ward 86. So it really is, for me, I just feel it's a very exciting time in HIV medicine. Um, We've been talking about long-acting for a long time as something glimmering in the distance, and now we have it, and we only have one combination regimen, but it can do a lot of good, which is long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. And so in January of 2021, those two drugs were approved in combination. And pretty soon thereafter, um, we started a designated program to deliver long-acting ART at Ward 86 um, in a program that we call Splash, Splashdowns for Special Programs of Long-Acting Antiretrovirals to Stop HIV, to both long-acting prevention with cabotegravir long-acting treatment um, with capitagavir and mopivirine. And uh, we have um, went on a limb a bit and and started both long-acting capitagavir and mopivirine in virologically suppressed patients as the FDA guidance advises based on the results of the FLARE ATLAS and ATLAS 2M trials that they were all um, studied, these drugs in virologically suppressed patients who are switching over from oral ART but we also um, have been using long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine in viremic individuals who, who, if they have a lot of barriers to taking oral ART, all those barriers of housing, insecurity, substance use, um, and they really can't take oral ART, we'd rather have them be on a regimen than not be on a regimen. And we've been using long-acting ART, and we've really tried to publish our data and show that this program is working. Our demonstration project really shows that we have high rates of virologic suppression that are achieved in our very remic patients. And now we have data from small centers around the country. University of Mississippi just put one out and the opera cohort is a big cohort. And it looks like in 229 patients there who had viremia, about an 80% virologic suppression rate with long acting cabril. So we're very excited. It's really a great time to have this option for people who can't take oral ART to be able to come in and get injections every four to eight weeks. Dr. Gandhi is not the only healthcare professional who sees the larger potential for long-acting HIV treatment. 
Ann Avery, an infectious disease physician at Metro Health Medical Center and professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio, also shared some examples of people with unmet HIV treatment needs who were finally able to achieve their treatment goals with off-label use of long-acting cabotegravir plus ropivirine. I think long-acting injectables are a game changer. Um, when we looked at viral suppression rates in our clinic, you know, we're somewhere between 70 and 80 percent virally suppressed, depending on how you uh, look at the denominator. And so then you look at who are those people that are not virally suppressed and then think about, well, why? And the challenge is that the people who are not virally suppressed have, are very distinct in their needs or reasons for not adhering. And so the first few people that I got on long-acting injectables were people who really were struggling to take pills on a daily basis. Um, one woman was couldn't swallow. She just really struggled with swallowing pills every day. Another one, you know, would take them here and there and then get hospitalized. And, and so the first two patients that I got on long-acting injectables were not your traditional pill fatigue, doing great, and just want to switch because it's convenient. They were people who really couldn't take medication on a consistent basis, and their health was affected by it. Um, and they did great. They loved it. They were, you know, the one woman was somebody who had been infected at child at birth, vertically infected, and had all sorts of complications. And, you know, she just became a beautiful person. Like the skin issues had cleared up. Her attitude was improved. She felt good. She, she's empowered to be, you know, a young, healthy adult. So since then, I have systematically offered it to my patients when I see them and say, and explain to them that the long acting injectables are a new option. They're not a better option than their daily pill, but they're a new option. And for some people they're better and some people they're not better because you do right now have to come in more often than what I'm seeing you you know, every six months, you're going to have to come in every one to two months, depending on where you're at in the medication cycle. And so the we have about 200 patients on long-acting injectables because there has been an overwhelming response to, yes, I want to get on them, um, to free themselves from the pill burden. There is a, for some people, the daily pill is reminds them every day of having HIV. And when they take their medication by an injection, they don't have to think about it till their next shot. And so from a, you know, alleviating the daily stress, other patients say, I don't want that because I don't want to come in and get a shot. I don't want the inconvenience of coming in. Um, and that's fine. To frame it, 200 is just under 10% of our total clinic population. Isold Butler is Chief Medical Officer at Crescent Care, a federally qualified health center in New Orleans, Louisiana. Like Dr. Avery, Dr. Butler notes that although long-acting cabotegravir plus ropivirine is not meant to be a one-size-fits-all strategy for everyone, it is closing critical gaps in care that have not been well addressed by daily oral therapies. This has really been a wonderful addition to our kind of toolkit, if you will, um, Clearly, it's not for everybody, and I think that's a really important point that I talk about with my patients. You know, I think it's very important to be clear up front where this medication makes sense and where it doesn't. Um, you know, one of the things to keep in mind, it requires a certain amount of rigor in coming in every two months for an injection, and that's not available to everybody. But for those where it is available and they're interested in it, 
it has really been a game changer for some of my patients. Um, I've had, you know, I was telling somebody the other day about a patient who I have, who I've worked with for almost 10 years. And during our entire time together, I don't think she ever once had a undetectable viral load. She really struggled just physically taking pills, had a lot of trouble swallowing them. Again, a number of kind of social determinant of health issues going on in the background. She came and told me, you know, I really want to be on the injection. I'm not going to lie. I was very dubious at first because she frequently missed visits. But you said, I said, you know what, we will give this a try. And she came in, we were able to get her on, medi on the injection and she has come to every visit on the spot for the first time in the entire time I've worked with her, she has an undetectable viral load. Her T cells are finally for the first time that I, since I've known her over 200, she is at her healthiest. And it, it's just been an amazing thing to see. Um, I think for some patients who really struggle like she did with taking pills, for patients who just, you know, I have a number of patients where this is the only pill that they take. And so it makes it even more difficult to remember. And of course, that daily reminder that the pill is about HIV diagnosis, and we know the importance of stigma in adherence. Um, so a lot of my patients will hide their medications, so family don't see it, and it just takes that burden off of them. Uh, and, and they've been very thankful to be on this medication. So it, it really has been wonderful. I actually have several patients who are unhoused where I have them on injections because even though they're unhoused, they're in the city, they can find their way and get, make it to their appointments by and large, especially because we're able to offer some support services for transportation, but they don't have to carry their pills around with them because otherwise they were just carrying them in backpacks. They would frequently get stolen. They would be crashing at a friend's house. They wouldn't feel comfortable having the medications there. And, you know, it, it was a real problem. So again, I think for a lot of people, just taking the daily burden of the medication off makes a big difference. It is also important to recognize that the first long-acting injectable HIV regimen is not without shortcomings. I asked Dr. Orkin about some of the limitations of this regimen at the current time. Well, the first limitation is that it's not for everybody. It's for people that are virally suppressed on treatment. And it's also people who have no history of failure of the treatment failing uh, with NNRTI mutations uh, or with integrase inhibitor mutations, people can't have hepatitis B. Those are very, very important considerations. But then there's the issue of factors that increase the likelihood of the treatment not working. And there are some factors that have been identified in a multivariable analysis, uh, which I actually led the publication uh, this year. And the predictive factors are having baseline ropivirine mutations, having an A1 or an A6 subtype, and having a BMI greater than 30. Now, what's really important to say is it's not each having any one of these factors, it's having two or more of these factors that becomes predictive. And the model is very clear that a single factor alone um, does not cause a, a level of biological failure, which is any different to what happened in the clinical trials. But once you end up with two factors, then the prediction becomes, the model becomes helpful. Now, the model is not perfect because there may be other factors that we don't understand uh, about the treatment because there are very, very few virological failures in the uh, clinical trials. So it's like trying to do an analysis, you know, looking for a needle in a haystack. So I think this is what we found, and we found this consistently. Um, but I think this is probably not the whole story, but it's definitely part of the story, and clinicians are using it, and it's been helpful. The most recent long-acting option to be added to the HIV treatment armamentarium is the even longer-acting drug, lenacapavir, 
which is administered every six months as a subcutaneous injection. At the current time, lenacapavir is approved for use in conjunction with other antiretrovirals for the treatment of multidrug-resistant HIV in people with limited treatment options, a small but critical population. Here's Dr. Orkin. So we have lenacapavir, which is the first ever capsid inhibitor, and it's delivered stunning results in people uh, who have significant levels of, of drug resistance, and it's being trialed in first-line therapy. It's also been trialed in PrEP. One challenge with lenacapavir is that it currently needs to be combined with other antiretroviral agents, but research is ongoing to identify a suitable long-acting partner for lenacapavir that could allow a complete once-every-six-month regimen. Here's Dr. Avery again. So we've got lenacapavir as the newest injectable medication that's an every six-month medication. And then, you know, I think that we do expect to see six-month regimens become more available in the next few years, where if I can get somebody into the clinic twice a year, that's, a you know, amazing because now we're looking at almost a directly observed therapy for patients, and then you don't have to worry about it for six months. I asked Dr. Orkin about potential future partners for lenacapavir and where things stand with another potential long-acting option that's under investigation is latrivir. Well, I think our pipeline hit a bit of a bump recently um, when we discovered that it's latrivir, which was going to be the partner for lenacapavir, um, had led to reductions in total lymphocyte count for PrEP and in CD4 counts uh, in people living with HIV. And this has meant that the entire development program for Derevernus latrivir has had to be revised as a first step towards moving towards injectables uh, with the drug being used as oral therapy in a lower dose before it can be sort of moved forward really in terms of understanding whether this is something that happens if it, at a lower dose. Um, what the data so far show is that it may not be something that happens. I don't think it will happen at a lower dose, but are they going to be able to formulate the drug at, at a high enough dose to be received as a long-acting treatment and not to confer the side effects? So this is the difficult problem. Um, so lenacapavir is a partner and ideally a partner that has a similar half-life. So at the moment, this isn't the case. So I think in terms of possible agents, there are broad neutralizing antibodies which are being looked at. Um, and I think that um, in terms of partners, that that's probably um, the currently, the, those are currently the front runners. There are some agents further behind in development in other classes. In talking about other potential future uses for lenacapavir with Dr. Gandhi, she described how they are beginning to use it off-label to address a gap for people who really cannot achieve viral suppression with the daily oral regimen, but are also unable to take long-acting cabotegravir plus rolpivirine because of the presence of NNRTI resistance. Dr. Ghani described this limitation with cabotegravir and rolpivirine and how lenacapavir may be able to fill that gap. But there's one thing that's limiting us and we're thinking about a lot, which is that long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine, by definition, has to be used in patients who do not have underlying um, resistance mutations. So there's not a lot of circulating integrase inhibitor resistance. Cabotegravir usually works fine, but there is a certain degree of rolpivirine-associated mutations circulating in the U.S. population. 
because of the long, prolonged use of efavirenz as first-line therapy in the past. And so there are patients who have NNRTI resistance mutations where we can't use cabotegravir and lopivirine. Lopivirine won't work and that will leave cabotegravir unprotected. So ever since lenacapavir came out, which just was December, 2022, lenacapavir is the first in kind capsid inhibitor approved for um, multidrug resistant HIV. We have been combining lenacapavir with cabotegravir when we um, when when a patient really can't take oral ART and they have NNRTI resistance, we've been combining that lenacapavir every six months with cabotegravir every four weeks or eight weeks, and we've been seeing some good success in early um, case series that we're that we're going to put out. So um, we're really intrigued by that particular combination as uh, an innovative uh, long-acting combination, two different drugs, but um, we are able to combine them in 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 our setting. One challenge with current long-acting injectable therapies is that they require clinic visits for a healthcare professional to administer the injections. That raises the question of if there could be long-acting options in the future that allow self-injection, or even better, that are available in an oral formulation. I also asked Dr. Orkin for her thoughts on this. So with respect to oral therapy, this would be, you know, got a coming full circle, and there is the technology to develop uh, long-acting uh, nanosuspensions for oral therapies. Um, but this hasn't happened yet in HIV uh, in terms of any sort of clear larger scale trials. And this would be a great hope to take a single tablet will reduce many implementation issues. In terms of self-injection, I think that um, the the developers of cabotegravir-pivirine and lincafibir are certainly looking at potential self-injections. Um, and I think for cabotegravir-pivirine, there's currently a study of subcutaneous injection um, of uh, cabotegravir-pivirine. Depending on that, that might be something that might be helpful because that would be more amenable um, to, to a self-injection. And I think there's also a, a, you know, attempted studies to inject into the thigh, which would mean that people would be able to self-inject. But right now with cabotegravir-pivirine, it's two big injections. So it would really be about reformulating to make it smaller, smaller volume and more possible. So what else might be on the horizon or further in the future for expanding HIV treatment options and modalities? Here's Dr. Gandhi. Yes, I mean, you know, we didn't think this time would be here where we got injectables even. And so now we get to think really creatively and innovatively. And I think there's going to be more. I mean, there's certainly in development. So I do think the implants are the next exciting possibility for treatment of HIV or even prevention of HIV. Um, the implants uh, that at least we have some data on in macaques and, and primate models, and then there's um, a small study um, in, in humans just looking at the pharmacokinetics. Now that long-acting injectable HIV treatment has arrived, it's certainly exciting to think about the potential for future innovations and how they could further expand the feasibility of HIV therapy for a wider population, as well as better address the range of treatment preferences among people living with HIV. So the implantable, the injectable, um, and all the new novel strategies that are coming out are um, providing more options for people. They're alleviating some of the barriers to regular care and regular medication adherence. And I think they help patients feel less stigmatized because they don't have to worry about somebody goes in their medicine cabinet and sees their, you know, their HIV medication and Googles it and says, 
oh, they must be HIV positive. And in the whole time, this person has not disclosed that information. So the, the inadvertent disclosure uh, risk is also lessened. That was Dr. Avery, and Angelina Namiba agrees with these insights on the importance of continued advances in HIV treatment. So I think the way treatment is evolving is good because it just means hey, there's more options for different types of people, there's more choices, there's more taking into consideration the different lives and the diverse needs of the different people living with HIV. Marissa Gonzalez, advisor and chair of the Community Advisory Board for the Well Project, shared her insights on important considerations for research into future HIV treatment advances. So I think where we are going in in the trajectory of advances in medications from where we started to where we are today, I think we have amazing advances. I think some of the things that need to be targeted more specifically when we consider this topic is that, you know, there's this big movement around U equals U, right? But not everybody can reach that U equals U, that undetectable equals untransmittable status. And it may not be of any fault of their own, whether it be just because of the type of medication, whether it be because of their immune system, whatever. So I think it's really important for um, individuals to understand that while U equals U is great, it's not something that's attainable for all. Um, The other piece of that is, you know, where we are today with these injectable medications and these long acting and medications, it's from going to having to take a pill every single day to now being able to potentially have the option of this, I think is really great for people. But it kind of goes back to that same point. Not everyone can be reached. There's always testing to make sure that your body's not resistant to any of the drugs. And depending how long you've been on medication, you may have some of those resistances. So I think if we were able to find medications that are long acting, that work for all types of people, there's also been a lot of questions and concerns around the studies of these these newer ideas and the populations that aren't being targeted. So there's a lot of low representation when it comes to women of color, cisgender women, um, transgender men, um, you know, so there's all of these things that we have to consider. Dr. Orkin echoed Marissa's points about needing long-acting therapies that are available to everyone and the importance of achieving better representation of all people living with HIV in HIV clinical trials. The important thing is not to give up and we need to keep developing agents. We need to keep Uh, pushing the pipeline on and doing the trials, it's really important that we think about inclusion and who is recruited to these clinical trials because so far long-acting therapies have predominantly been trialed in white gay men and I think this is not representative of the global population living with HIV who are represented by 54% of women. So it's very important that this is considered and they are developing guidelines around when a drug reaches the point of being close to um, license that studies in pregnancy must have taken place. And it's also important then when women become pregnant on trials, they have options around whether whether they continue in a safe way and with with full understanding. So those are important considerations. And I think that it's only when we we develop long-acting therapies that are for everyone that we can make sure that we improve outcomes for everyone. In this episode, we heard from global experts and people living with HIV 
on how the next wave of innovations in HIV treatment can better meet the diverse needs of people living with HIV. In the next episode, we'll hear from experts and people living with HIV on the current status of HIV cure research and key concepts that patients and healthcare professionals need to understand as the field continues to strive toward achieving an HIV cure. Go to the link in the show notes to get access to these and other episodes and short opinion pieces from HIV experts across the globe. Richard Jeffries, Basic Science Vaccines and Cure Project Director for the research and policy think tank Treatment Action Group, shares his thoughts on which type of studies represent the largest share of strategic approaches moving toward an HIV cure. I think, you know, that the number of studies that are ongoing reflects a broad variety of approaches that are being investigated for potential. Um, probably the largest uh, category of studies is combinations, sort of taking inspiration from the development of antiretroviral therapy, thinking that probably the best way to achieve the best outcome is by combining different approaches to target the way that the virus persists in different ways. Mm-hmm.